This morning we're going to begin our Advent series, and our Advent series is kind of interestingly titled Adopting Christmas, and there's really a play on words in that, and my hope is that it's twofold for us. The first part is if you are wondering what the meaning of Christmas is about, the proof of Christmas the hope of Christmas, the love of Christmas, the faith of Christmas, the joy or the peace of Christmas. My hope is as we walk through this together that you might come to the place where you adopt the true meaning of Christmas. If you've put your faith in Christ and you know who Jesus is and you believe him to be who he's claimed to be in the scriptures... My hope is that you would see this Christmas season in light of the adoption that you've received in Christ. In Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, which is at the heart of our series, it is kind of the underlying theme for the totality of our series. It says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This morning, we're going to be looking at this idea of adopting hope. The God's history in the promise fulfilled. And my hope is that what we see is that through adoption, through the adoption that we have in Christ Jesus, that we see the totality, the pieces of that adoption that God has granted to us. And what I want us to see is that God uses adoption throughout redemptive history to protect to preserve, and to bring about his promise. So this morning we're going to be looking at Acts 7. I know we just finished the the series on Acts, but we're going to dive back into Acts 7. And this is not historically a a Christmas passage. But we're going to be looking at the adoption of Moses. That will be our stepping off point to point us directly to the Messiah, to actually see God's plan in using adoption as a part of his redemptive history. It's interesting, in our culture today, adoption has become a good thing. We see it as a preserver of life. We see it as a a way for those who are not yet ready to parent To provide their children a better opportunity to be parented. We see it as a protection and a response to a, a culture that on the one hand screams child-centered parenting in every way, that puts your children above and first in all things, and contrasted with the ease at which destruction comes through things like abortion and infanticide because it destroys the plans that we had for our lives. 
God has constantly used adoption to redeem. I had a family member that was adopted in the 1950s. At the time, adoption was looked down upon. I remember my other family members sharing the joy that they found out they could had a, a child of their a biological child, and through the delivery of that biological child, uh, the mother was damaged enough that she could no longer have more children. And they had waited for the adoption of this child, and when the child came, with the adoption agency and the social worker's presence, they said, tell no one, and we will deliver the baby to you in the parking lot. And the baby was brought down the back steps of the hospital into the parking lot where they delivered the baby. The enemy will often try to defile things like adoption. And it will even try to make parenthood seems in some ways only valuable when it's biological. And yet, God's choice of bringing about redemption to his people and God's choice in redeeming his people, in showing his love towards his people, in fulfilling his promise to his people, has been through adoption. And so this morning, as we dive into this this part of Acts and this narrative that's taking place, my hope is that we actually see that adoption is used to bring about hope. That God uses it in our lives to experience His hope and God brings it into His world as an image-making opportunity for people to see Christ-like love. So let's go ahead and stand together as we, we read Acts 7 here. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 38. And there'll kind of be an interesting starting point and an interesting end point. You'll notice that we're starting right in the middle of a narrative, and I'll explain why here in just a moment. It says this, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. 
When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word. Thank you, God, for the grace that you display towards us. Thank you, God, for adoption. That you have become a father to your people, not biologically, but through your blood and through your spirit. May we rejoice, God, that throughout history, you have used adoption to define the relationship with your people. And Father, as we think of this Advent season, may we be reminded that it is you who saves and you who redeems. Lord God, may you move me aside this morning and may it be you who brings your word in power. God, fill our hearts, God, with your word, with your truth. And enlighten your word. Help us to understand your truth this morning. May you change us through your word and through the work of your spirit. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, throughout redemptive history, God uses adoption to bring hope in the fulfillment of his promise to his people. Throughout redemptive history, God uses adoption to bring hope in the fulfillment of his promise to his people. This idea of adoption, bringing hope in his promise. And that's in part where God has us land today, is this idea of standing in the hope of God, recognizing the power of adoption. Both the adoption to protect his promises and his adoption to deliver on his promises. Now, in Acts chapter 7, what's taking place here is Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin and he is testifying 
to why he is not trying to slander Moses, but rather show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God had spoken about and that Moses himself had spoken about. Now, Stephen, we know, is an interesting person, right? In Scripture, he's the very first follower of Christ that we see martyred for his faith. Now, Stephen doesn't soften the blow of sin. He actually begins to show the Jews their sin. And he focuses not necessarily on the destructiveness of their sin, but he actually focuses on the faithfulness of God. And so this whole narrative here in chapter 7 is demonstrating or pointing to God's faithfulness. This is a passage about God carrying out the work and the promise that he had given his people. Now, in chapter 7, verse 17, it says, But as the time of this promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. Now, this Joseph is not Joseph, Jesus' father. This Joseph is the son of Jacob, who had been sent off by his brothers into a foreign land. God actually takes Joseph's imprisonment in this foreign land and uses it to take the, the Abrahamic family, Isaac and Jacob, and bring them into Egypt to care for them during a famine. Now, Joseph had been given fa favor by Pharaoh at that time. And so the Israelites are now in the land. Now, what was at the heart of this, problem, this, this promise that God gave to Abraham? Well, in Genesis 12 and 17, he lays it out. And I think Michael Lawrence sums it up well when he says that there were really three elements of it. He says that to make from Abraham a great nation, that was one, and to bless Abraham and make his name great so that he will be a blessing to those who bless him and a curse to those who curse him. That was the first part of that promise. The second part of that promise was that the descendants of all the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates would be given to Abraham. And that later this land would actually become theirs, known as the promised land. And then finally, that promise to Abraham was that he would make Abraham the father of many nations and give the totality of that land to them as a nation and that he would use circumcision as a permanent sign of the covenant between Abraham and God that could never be broken. That God was to be amongst them, that they would be made a, a numerous people in a promised land flowing with milk and honey. In essence, what was being brought forth through the Abrahamic covenant was this idea of grace. Abraham not deserving, but God coming and establishing a people for himself to demonstrate and reveal his glory, to experience the fruits of being in the presence of the living God. 
with all rights and benefits as sons and daughters. Now, for many of the Israelites, they thought that would come in a way of a king, an earthly king, one who could destroy nations and overtake the land, one who was wise and could provide abundance through prosperity and business and agriculture, one who would defeat their enemies. And yet God had a different plan. But here's the thing. As a part of this plan, he was raising up a leader to now move his people who were in Egypt, in captivity, who were being abused in the land of Egypt, and he was raising up one who would take them out of their bondage. And we're told here, that this king dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So picture this for a second. The Israelites in their land, they're getting so large, they're multiplying as God had promised amongst this nation in bondage that the king understands that if this people rise up, we know from Exodus 2, that the king then issues a decree and says, Kill all the infant boys. Take them down. Destroy them. And these babies, ironically, were often taken to the the Nile River and dropped in the river. Now, it's unique if you know the story of Moses' mother. And I think this is an important piece. You can see how Moses' mother operates here for a second. I'm going to save them. I'll put them in the Nile, but I'm going to float them. Right? We've been there, right? Moses goes and this is floated along the river and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Now this is not necessarily what we picture as God's way of doing things. What God is beginning to show and what Stephen is actually showing the Israelites is that there is a hope that is rooted in the promise of God. And adoption is a part of that hope. And so it says this, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. So the hope of adoption in the fulfillment of God's promise really leads to two specific things. It's centered, founded, rooted in two specific things. The first is God's presence. The first is God's presence. This is where it says, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Now remember this. For the Israelites who are hearing Stephen tell of this, those that had rejected the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, prior to the ministry of Jesus, they had not heard a word from the Lord in 400 years. The last voice was Malachi's voice 
when he says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These Jews were acting as if God was silent. They were hopeless. The promise had come, and Stephen is pointing out, listen, there were another people who were hopeless too. They too were waiting for deliverance. And they too didn't recognize it. They didn't see it. And what he points out to him here is, listen, that God has been present all along. That the hope of adoption is about God's presence. See, while God is sovereign, he is a personal God who is near to us. Notice Moses' heart here. Moses' heart is for his brothers. God has not taken that away. God is near to him. God is watching. In all of this, God saw what was happening. God saw the evil. God saw his people experiencing the wrath of this Pharaoh. God had not forgotten. God was present. God is still present. He is a sovereign ruler who is deeply personal. He has crafted you exactly as he wanted. There are no mistakes. One of the greatest lies is believing that you were created as a mistake. Sin comes in. It distorts the desires that God has for us. That's what sin does. Sin makes us think and feel like something is entirely natural that is not. It seems natural to lie sometimes. I mean, heck, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, right? It seems natural to lust, doesn't it? What's just a look? Same-sex attraction seems natural. It's, it's what I've always felt. Gossip, it, I don't really control that, do I? I'm just talking about somebody else. And this is the essence of why Christ tells us that we must deny ourselves. That he is the one who defines truth, not us. He's the one. It's why that we can each relate to sin in such a powerful way. We can each understand how sin makes it seem like it is so natural. One of the greatest things that breaks my heart today is the push towards transgenderism. If you're wrestling with that, can I share this with you? 
God did not make a mistake in making you. You have a deceiver of your soul who would love nothing more than to bring destruction to your life. But God is faithful. And your hope can be found in his identity, not in your flesh and not in your sexuality. That is true of all of us. That as adopted children of God, our identity is not in ourselves or should not be in ourselves, but rather in Him. So while God is sovereign and personal, we need to see that His presence is among us in Christ. And the coming Messiah was about God's presence. About this adoption that he would grant us through faith. Now when God revealed his plan to Joseph in Matthew 1, 21 through 23, we're actually told that she, that is Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's our hope. Now notice, even though God is with us, even though he is present, His ways are not our ways. And so notice that God's ways and plans are different from ours. Sometimes we think, well, God's present with me. I can just do everything I want to do and go do it my way. But the truth is God's ways and plans are different from ours. Notice what happens here in verse 25 through 28. After Moses goes out and visits his brothers, he sees one that is wronging them and He defends the person that is being oppressed and he strikes him down. He murders him. He kills him. Now notice what he says in verse 25. He says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now for us, ever been there not murdering somebody and wondering what happened? But maybe, maybe that's where we've been. But usually, it's believing that we were in some way good-intentioned and realizing that our intentions actually were not of God at all. Now notice, here in verse 26, it says, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses has completely understood, misunderstood. The efforts that he took were completely misguided. And those efforts actually lent him to even more bondage, did they not? It says that Moses fled as an exile into Midian and lived there how many years? Forty. 
So now the one who was saved from deliverance, that's supposed to be the deliverer, is now in bondage for another 40 years. So the adoption is about God's presence, but it's also about his plans and his purposes, that his ways and plans are not ours. I mean, have you ever thought about God's redemptive plan for a minute? It is kind of interesting, is it not? That Mary, a virgin, the Holy Spirit conceives with her, brings about Jesus. This Savior is then born. He's not even treated as a king, but rather he is then brought out into Bethlehem, most likely not into the nice little clean stable picture that we have on our nativity sets, but into the, the, the hillside of a cave. It's messy. It's dirty. This is the king? Oh, oh, and by the way, this king is now going to be persecuted with a crown of thorns, whipped and beaten on our behalf, going to a cross, dying and rising again. I remember as a kid going, God, there has got to be a simpler way. Right? But the reason there is not a simpler way is because God cannot violate his character. And he demands justice for sin. And he deals rightly in his holiness with sin and then brings about that redemption. You see, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, we're told this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's at the heart of our adoption. That's at the heart of his deliverance, is that we might be filled with the Spirit of God, with his presence, so that why we might understand and we might know his truth. So, in verse 30, he goes on and he says, Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the fire in the bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. What was God doing there? He was reminding him of the promise. Of the promise that he made to Abraham, of the promise that he made to Isaac, of the promise that he made to Jacob, and that he was the one coming to fulfill his promise. That's the beauty of it. God is the one who is faithful to fulfill his promises. You see, when we make God into our own image, we lose sight of this. That's why God's ways are different than our ways. Because we try to make God into our image. God, if it were me, this is how I would do it. And God, I think that you could probably do it better if you did it this way. It would be a whole lot easier, a lot, painful for me, a lot less painful for me and I'd feel a lot better about myself if you did it this way. The problem is, is that way has led to death. It's led to destruction. 
It's rooted and marred in sinfulness and imperfection. And yet, through his presence in our life, we get to experience his perfection. We get to experience his righteousness. And so he reminds Moses that he is the fulfiller of the promise. Yeah, Moses, you did go ahead and you killed that Egyptian guard. And oh, by the way, you did flee and you've been in the wilderness for 40 years. It's kind of interesting that Moses has been in that wilderness many times for 40 years. It's a wonderful picture that we don't just often go through the wilderness once, but we often go through it more. Because God in the wilderness, one, reminds us of his presence and then shows us his deliverance. A God who is faithfully showing us his presence and letting us experience his deliverance. So the second thing then is first, the hope of adoption is that God's presence. The second is then his deliverance. The hope of adoption in the fulfillment of the promise begins with God's presence and it then centers around his deliverance. Notice what it says. Then the Lord said to him, I have come down to deliver them. That's why God was there. To deliver the Israelites. Our adoption in Christ is about the fact that we receive his presence through the Spirit and we have his deliverance through Christ. Now notice there's actually three parts here about God's deliverance just to remind us that it's not anything that we've done, but it is completely what he's done. Notice what he says. He says, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, this would have been unique to Moses, right? In Moses' day, what's happening here? God's present in the tabernacle. But now he's present in the bush. He's reminding them that his holiness is not simply a place, but rather in the personhood of the Father. Isaiah 46, 13 says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 through 31 adds this. It says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus came to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But it's after Christ has revealed himself to you. That's the beauty of it. Christ fulfilling his promise of deliverance coming to you. The fact that you see and understand God's grace is an example of God's love and hope being displayed towards you. This is hopeful. God didn't make a mistake in showing you his gospel. He brought it to you. 
And here's the best part. He gave you his righteousness. It was about his holiness, not about your own. That means that I can come to God as a murderer and his holiness is sufficient for me to have a relationship with Jesus. It is in his holiness that I'm able to stand before the living God. It is in his holiness that my deliverance is granted. What a wonderful thing. When we think of Christmas and we think of the Christ coming, Jesus being born lowly and humble, that's exactly how God wants us to come before him. And he gives us his holiness. Now notice, he goes on and he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. He hears the crying of our heart. He hears the cry of our heart. So first he comes in his holiness and then he hears the cry of our heart. What a wonderful thing too. This is not a, a deliverance that's based upon our works. This is a deliverance that's based upon the cry of our heart. It means that we cry out first to God and then God begins working on our heart. One of the things we've been talking about in our men's group has been the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is not something to be manufactured. It's kind of a both end. We know what God wants us to walk in, self-control, love, and kindness. But you ever tried to love somebody more? You ever try to be kind when you don't feel kind, it lasts for a moment, but then you've had it, right? Through the Spirit is actually what's coming out as you submit to God and seek Him. God hears the cry of our heart. Praise the Lord. Our salvation is best upon the confession of our heart that Jesus is Lord. It's not based upon your works. This is the deliverance that God has offered to you in the fulfillment of his promise. This gives us hope. That means that because I sin, that when I sin, not as an excuse to continue to sin, but when I sin, I can get back up and come before the throne of God knowing that my sin has already been forgiven because his deliverance is based upon the Confession and the cry of my heart. So he comes to us in his holiness. He hears the cry of our heart. And then he sends the one who redeems. He sends the one who redeems. It says, now come, I will send you to Egypt. God is the one who sends the one to redeem. A redemption is is not in Moses, but it is in the Redeemer, of whom Moses said there would be one who would come after him, who would be like him, but the nations would experience this redemption. You see, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's 1 John 4, 9. God is the one who sends the Redeemer. 
You see how his deliverance is solely a work of him? That his promise is solely fulfilled by him? This gives us tremendous hope. Because guess what? God's the one who fulfills his promise. And as a part of fulfilling his promise, he's brought his presence into and dwelling in those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ through his spirit. And he's also the one that's brought about his deliverance. He's the one that's come to you. He's the one that's brought his holiness to you. He's the one that's heard the confession of your heart. And he's the one that sends the redeemer. Well, where does that lead us then? It leads us to the last part of this passage. And the last part of this passage deals with one solid truth that gives us hope. And that is this. That Moses and the prophets, that is God's word, declare the fulfillment of God's promise, who is Jesus Christ. Moses and the prophets, who we learn from God's word, declare the fulfillment of God's promise, Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. It says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs. This is the Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the wilderness. He received living oracles to give to us. What Stephen was pointing out to the Israelites in that moment was that Moses himself was declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. That all of redemptive history pointed to Jesus. That all of the teachings of Moses and all of the teachings of the prophets pointed to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, it says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses talking from among you, from your brothers. It is in him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die." The prophets that we have in the scriptures declare this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah, that our hope is in Christ. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he concludes in verse 44, then he said to them, these are the words, my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the source of our hope. That's what this is about. That's what Christmas is about. That's what our adoption as followers of Christ, as saints, as God's children is about. His presence and His deliverance. And it's all found in Jesus.
It's why when the Bible is dumbed down to just a set of moral truths, we've missed it. Every single book of the Bible points to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Every single one. And unless it leads us back to the gospel, we have not handled the word of God rightly. That's what he's saying. It always must point back to Jesus. And the beauty of this is that God has revealed that to us. You see, when Stephen was talking to them, Stephen Cole points out that they had thought that having the temple gave them special privileges with God no matter how corrupt their behavior. And so Stephen was indicting the Jews in his days with the same charge. They thought worship at the temple gave them a place of special blessing, even though their hearts were wicked and far from God. Our hope is found in Jesus. And I think Paul David Tripp sums it up well when he says this. Hope is not a thing, not a location, not a situation, not an experience. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for this season of being able to see that our hope is not in the situation and circumstances of life, but it is in the promise that you have fulfilled through Jesus Christ. May we see that the hope of our adoption centers around your presence in our life and your deliverance of our life. And God, in everything that we do, may we see that all of redemptive history points to you as the Messiah. May you open our eyes to see how you have protected and preserved and fulfilled your promise in your faithfulness. And may our hope be rooted and grounded in your steadfast commitment to the covenant that you hold with your people. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.